welcome back to the NBA Recap Show here on the Mojo Sports Network. It is week 12, or the end of week 12, should I say, in the NBA. I've got with me Tom Dev, the international correspondent, Yuri Bilsic, the mini basketball encyclopedia, and the CEO himself of Sports Confidential, Jack Brophy. Jack, how are you, mate? How's your week been? Good, good. Very hectic, but great to be back on this show. Uh, I feel like I'm a little bit sporadic on times that I'm on this show, but every time that I get to come on, I absolutely love it. I've been talking all basketball with you guys. Tom, how are you? Yeah, not not, not too bad after uh, probably the worst Celtics loss I've seen in about a year and a half. But, uh, you know, got to recover. And, you know, I, I mean, I was out last night and I'm, I'm, I'm on the show today. I feel like I'm playing back-to-back. So, you know, I'll get into it a bit <laughs> later. But I don't know why some of these other players can't. But we'll see. We'll get to that Celtics loss and the back-to-back shortly. And Yuri, mate, how are you doing this week? Yeah, fantastic, Alex. Just, yeah, been a pretty full-on week so far. Just did an interview on Thursday as well with one of the NBL CEOs as well, which was a really good chat as well, just talking about his sort of career within post-basketball playing career as well and his time with Southeast Melbourne Phoenix, which he's currently been CEO for the last five and a half years. So it was a really insightful chat to learn more about. And, yeah, just been full-on with a few other written articles as well here and there, especially with the Australian Open up and running today, which has been fantastic. Where can we read that article, Matt? So you can read on my Substack account as well. You also see it on my LinkedIn, which is on top of the profile, which says subscribe to my newsletter with a rocket emoji on it. Yeah, I think we've got a link to Substack in the show description. All right, funny week in the NBA, guys. Uh, it starts with John Morant being ruled out for the rest of the season of Torn Labrum, apparently suffered during a training session. Um, he was ruled out really late of the game against Phoenix, so I decided not to watch that. Kevin Durant, I think, was also supposed to be ruled out. Um, and everyone was like, oh, maybe he's just pulled up sore. But no, it's, it's a torn labrum. He's gone for the year. Um, do you guys remember where you were when you heard that? Because I frankly couldn't believe that news. Jack, we'll start with you. You're nodding along. Yeah, I definitely could. Um, as we, a lot of us do, we play fantasy. So one of my friends has been pumping him up the whole time. Ja Morant's finally back. I have um, Is the chitter-chatter of the group. And uh, to see him go down, it, and it was related to an injury, not uh, something off the court from another perspective so that was quite interesting to hear obviously it's disappointing for the Grizz- for the Grizzlies because they really started to get a roll on at the moment they've got Marcus Smart was out today Desmond Bain out so you said that they were going to go all right Alex and that's unfortunate for you because they haven't um, and it's really going to impact them for the rest of the season have we got a timeline on Desmond Bain's injury I haven't seen that one yet No, there's no timeline yet. So we'll just wait and see. Maybe they shut him down early for the rest of the season. Uh, Tom, what about you? How are you feeling about losing Jar for the rest of the year? I I actually think this might be a good thing for the Grizzlies because I think at the end of the day, the marathon, or the sprint more say, that they were going to have to make just to make the play in really after their poor start would have probably just drained them. Maybe might have made the playoffs through the play in and then probably would have just gone out the first round. I mean, without Steve Adams, their season from the get-go was already kind of not looking so great. You know, Jaron Jackson Jr. still doesn't know how to rebound, apparently. So I, I don't <laughs> think, you know, that front court battle, especially when you're going up against guys like Jokic in the West and, you know, the Twin Towers in Minnesota now, I just, I don't think it was going to work. So look, they can bottom out, you know, Smart's now out for an extended period of time, too. So it's yeah. not like they're, you know, it's not even tanking, really. It's just they just have a depleted roster. Get a load. Literally, I and mean, you know, get a high draft pick, and you know, maybe instead of drafting someone in this draft that's not, you know, not really shaping up to be anything spectacular, 
take that pick, trade it, and get a you know star in there who can also elevate the, this team to the next level. But we saw them a couple seasons reach, and you know, I mean, they fell flat in the playoffs last year. But you still kind of feel like last year they were one star for a guy away from really competing, and this draft pick might help them. It's unfortunate. Marcus Smart's been actually really good for them in the last uh, couple of weeks. I think he's out four to six weeks with that finger injury. Uh, Really bizarre one there. And Desmond Bain, I think my preseason prediction of him being an all-star might be gone. Jack, you mentioned that one. All right, Yuri, uh, my question to you is we had two major extensions signed this week, and I'm going to ask you to pick which one is the better deal. The first is coach Eric Spolstra signing, I think it's the largest monetary deal for a coach in North American sports history at eight years, $120 million dollars. Or Kawhi Leonard signing a three-year extension with the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, $153 million. I will note that's less than the max. Which is the best deal in your thoughts? Have to go with Eric Spolstra's deal, Alex. And it's basically what he's done since he joined the Miami Heat as a video video coordinator, shall I say, back in 1995. He's worked his way up the ranks as well. He's done it assortment of different roles within the Miami Heat organization from an assistant coach in 2001. He was also, I think, one of the recruiters as well for a particular period of time. And he's just really learnt the reins. And I think it really goes down to sort of within the Miami Heat culture that Pat Riley instilled when he first came there in the late 1990s. And, of course, they were having those battles with the New York Knicks, which arguably is one of the greatest sort of rivalries of all time within the NBA circuit. But... His whole sort of dedication to commitment in craft and figuring out just these little X and Ys and nuances within opposition teams and really scouting this really strategic game plan to really shut down the opposition is something that really goes under the radar, especially nowadays, right, with how the league has been sort of shaped in the last six, seven years with the emphasis on the three ball. Miami do a tremendous job defending the three and they've been doing again this season, right? And I think this is probably on top of the caper is how he's been able to deal with players who've been injured. Like Jimmy Butler's missed, what, I think nine out of the last 10 games, right? He's had to basically fill the void here and there. Haywood Highsmith, Nikola Jovic has started the last handful of games and... He always just comes up with these really just genius strategic moves every single time when I think people discount him out. And it basically just goes down to his sort of constant basketball philosophy of just being on top of the game right and just getting those simple basics right on the money. And once he's able to do that, he just nails it right down to a T. And when you look back probably, I think it was 2010, 2011, and it was... The first season, right, LeBron James came across from Cleveland to Miami. We, of course, know that all the Cavs fans burnt his jersey when he made that decision when he was talking to Jim Gray about leaving for South Beach. And they started 9-8. and eight. And so Spolstra was under the firing line at that point. I think it was allegedly rumoured that LeBron wanted him gone and he sort of really stood firm on his ground. And, of course, Miami... I think finishes the second seed that year as well because the Chicago Bulls won 62 games that year alone and Tibbs was got coached the year. But what he was able to do to really manage, especially those superstars in D-Wade, who he already had a fantastic relationship. Chris Bosh trying to incorporate him into the offense has really been that third offensive option. And LeBron as well. He just was magnificent, especially that 2012-13 season when Miami went on that 27-game winning streak from about, I think it was late January. LeBron as well had that layup against Orlando, which extended to about 16 wins at the time, which was just 
it, insanely incredible at that point. But what he's been able to do, especially even like lesser rosters, Alex, 2017-18, 2016-17, they were 11 and 30 at one point, Miami, and almost made the playoffs that 2016-17 mm. season. They end up, Remarkably I think, going 30. Consistent. You're exactly yeah. correct. Yep. Yeah, 13-11 in their last 41 games. And he just, again, it's sort of, we harp on this a bit, but it comes down to those fine, nuanced details that he's able to absolutely tap into. And especially, I think, Chris Quinn, who's a former Miami Heat player, who's been a long-time member of Spolster's staff. He's also a real integral piece as well. And it's just, it's truly well-deserved, right? And... We saw, of course, during the offseason, Monty Williams signs that, what, 60 or $78 million hey, deal. Don't Greg trigger, Popovich. Jack. That, that's a difficult one to talk about after losing 28 straight. Uh, that might be, where, that's where we put the pin in that one. We don't want anyone crying on the pod. Uh, Jack, we'll throw okay. to you in, and we'll move on from anything related to Detroit. We'll get it completely out your mind. It's fine. Talk to me about the Clippers and Kawhi's extension. Tom, you can chip in too if you've got any thoughts here. I think I think the the Clippers deal is even better for the the, the period of time. There's always, there's always been questions about what Kawhi is going to be doing, whether or not he's going to be fit, able to play. We've seen some continuity when Harden's come in. Obviously, they started zero and six. I'm pretty sure they're seventeen and three in their last twenty yeah, games. So it's fantastic to see that the Clippers are really starting to get some sort of synergy, not only on offense but I think defense. They're starting to work as well. Um, and the Clippers, for me, they're the best team in the NBA currently. And that's my that's my big call for the day. Like there's obviously their seventeen three best record at the moment. Timberwolves, Nuggets, obviously up there. The Celtics, bar that game the other day, are a team that's definitely going to be up there when the time counts. But the Clippers, for me, with this experience, I just think yeah, they're the, they're the team to beat. All right, well, let's stick on the Clippers. We'll come back to stories of the week because my next segment was going to be a question to you, asking legit or not legit. The Clippers currently fourth. In the Western Conference, um, they're a game behind the defending champions, the Denver Nuggets, in third. Uh, as you said, Jack, they're 17-3 and three in the last 20 games, and those losses are against the Thunder, uh, Boston, and the Lakers in a bit of a, a funny finish. Three-point loss there. Eight and two in the last 10. The last 20 games, I've got the stats in front of me for uh, PG, Kawhi Harden, and Avicii Zubac. I just love my baby Lakers. Paul George is averaging 24-5-3 and three with one-and-a-half steals, shooting 47% from three over 20 games. Kawhi Leonard's averaging 26, 6, and 4 with a whole bunch of stocks. Those are the steals and blocks. Shooting 47% from 3 over 20 games and nearly 60% from 2. Like, just shooting the lights out. Harden's averaging 18, 5, 10 assists with 2 stocks. Shooting 43% from 3. These are guys all shooting well above league average. And Zubac himself is 13, 10, uh, 2 blocks and steals. Shooting 70% from the floor. So, hyper efficiency there. That's 70 points a game you're getting from your four starters on really good efficiency. Um, Tom, are the Clippers legit? Yeah, I've, I've been on this from the moment they traded for Harden. And look, I'm, I'm going to change my tone a little bit. They're a legit team. And, and you have to start taking them seriously now. But for me, they're legit in the regular season. Come playoffs, I, I, I'd be happy to bet against them. And I will happily be proven wrong on this one if time comes. But... For the time being, they've shown me nothing in the last couple of years that they can be trusted in the postseason. And this includes Harden. As in, he, you know, he is one of the most notable playoff chokers in the history of the NBA. Uh, and look, they look really happy right now and everything's going great. But they're one injury away, really, I reckon, from this just completely unraveling, which is the same for most teams. I mean, I look at my Celtics. We're one injury away as well to a key player from it unraveling too. It's, it's the same for most teams. It's the 
reality of the NBA these days. These rosters are so like, top-heavy that one key injury can unravel you. Uh, but look, I'm enjoying watching this version of Harden. I think this is the best version of Harden that you know you can kind of see, where he's more of a playmaker. Uh, and you have to question if he was more of a playmaker in Houston than a scorer, would he have won a title there? Who knows? I mean, he didn't really have the teammates to sort of not have to to, to be able to pass the ball around more. But it, it's just more enjoyable. I mean, my favorite version of Harden was probably when he first joined the Nets and was sort of just like, I'm going to be that nice new guy and share the ball around with Kyrie and, and Durant and not try and score 30 a night. Instead, I'm going to try and get 13 assists a night. And that was what he's doing. That's sort of basically what he's doing now. It's great. Uh, but, you know, let's not forget, Harden looked this good last year at this point of the year. He didn't make the All-Star team, you know, basically just became unhappy and then reverted back to his old, you know, score-first Harden. And I think then, that's a threat again this year, to be honest with you. Literally, he probably won't make the All-Star team because the reality is there's just so much depth. Like, we'll get onto this later. I've, I've made an All-Star roster today and I, I'm just pulling my hair over it. It's impossible to do in the West nearly. Mm. So I don't think he will make one. So it, it's possible it could happen again. But, you know, he also, you know, was unhappy in Brooklyn after a while and same sort of thing happens and it's just I, it's a matter of time in my opinion until something goes wrong here and it's, it's, it's just quite hell I just I can't trust it for, for one second you know he's looked great don't get me wrong and I love watching Kawhi he's one of the most watchable players nearly in the history of the league you can make the case especially when come playoff time when he's playing those 40 minutes and he's going toe to toe with the best players in the world but, you know, he hasn't done that since 2019. Last year, he tried to, and his knee just completely gave up on him. And the problem with Kawhi as well is he, he, what makes him such a good player is he does it on both ends. So you can't take off possessions and stand in the corner and do nothing. For him to impact games, he has to do it on both ends. And can his knee really do that? Can his body really do that? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you guys are watching that Lakers game, uh, Lakers-Clippers game the other day, but, you know... Three minutes left. It's a couple possession game. And, oh, Kawhi's hit his minutes. He's got a game tomorrow night. Let's sit him on the bench. And I'm literally sitting there like, are you guys serious? It's a close game against one of your biggest rivals. And you're going to sit Kawhi? Is he really going to come to the playoffs and be able to do 40 minutes a night, a high level both ends, for four rounds? And then you get to the conference finals, and it's every other day they're playing. I, I don't trust it. And, you know, if he can't play at a high level, are they really going to rely on Paul George and Harden? I mean... I reckon you could make a highlight reel of, you know, about 20 minutes long of all the times Paul George and Harden have choked in the playoffs. I, I just, I can't trust them. But look, I'll admit, uh, Clippers are one of the teams I'm tuning in to watch every single day they're on. They're, it's so enjoyable to watch. And, you know, like you said, Alex, uh, you know, Zubac, can't believe the Lakers gave him up for peanuts, but he's, he's such a good center and so underrated. He's basically just 10 and 10 every night at least. We're about three or four games away from the halfway point of the year, so I can't really say this. But we, if we were 10 games out from the playoffs and I saw them playing like this, they would be my championship contenders. Uh, Jack, I'll let you finish your thought on the Clippers as well. No, I couldn't agree more with what Tom's saying. Like I'm saying right now, they are the hottest team in the NBA. That's the reason that they're the contenders of what they are. It's just like you said, whether or not any team has sort of injuries. Health, health is such a massive factor coming into the playoffs and also for the playoffs as well. So... You can, I can go up and say, yeah, the Clippers are the best team to watch right now, but will they be in obviously another 40 games time? Anything can happen between there. Harden could get unsettled. We're not too sure from there, but yeah, I completely agree. Yuri, do you have any where, more where, thoughts where on the Clippers? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Where, go ahead. Where do you sit with it, Alex? They've been very, very good the last 10 where they've gone 8-2. and two. I didn't see a lot of that first 10 games of this 20-game period we're talking about. 
they've been very, very good. When I tune in uh, to the condensed games after work or I see highlights, they're operating at a level I go, all right, if this was rolling into the playoffs, they'd be my favorites. Um, Kawhi Leonard's playing like a top seven or eight player in the league again. Paul George averaging like 25 shooting, what is it, 48% from three is unreal. And I think Harden and Jubak's game is, is great. I would want to see a little bit more from Russell Westbrook, but I get it. He's in the, the tail end of his career. He can't do everything. I think they've got some bench lineups that are funny, but again, middle of the season, you've got plenty of time to play and figure out who needs to be on the floor when. Um, Yuri, if you've got thoughts on the Clippers, chime in. Yeah, absolutely, Alex, and completely agree with Tom and Jack as well during this whole last sort of period that they've managed to really rewrite the ship because, what, Harden's first game was against the New York Knicks. They lost that one. I think they were 3-7 and seven at that point and really it was sort of staggers at that stage. But I think the big part with Harden as well, apart from the just over eight assists a game, I think 8.2 or 8.3 assists by memory, he's only committing, I think it's two and a half turnovers a game, right? When you think of James Harden and the ball in his hands, you think... He's going to commit four to six turnovers a game, right? So he's been a lot more efficient with the ball in hand and not going for those sort of erratic passes down the passing lanes where normally he does drive to the basket and then all of a sudden throws it back. But because the opposition player is right there to intercept, it sort of leaves everyone out of position. And so he's been able to cut that down really efficiently. And like you said as well, with Zubats and his pick-and-roll game, it's so reminiscent of... Clint Capella, Dwight Howard, those two in Houston, right? How Harden was able to set them up on the platter with his alley-oop passes and bounce passes based in the dunker spot. And so they've got that synergy absolutely rolling at this stage. And the other part too as well, PJ Tucker is basically a foregone conclusion out of the rotation now, He's right? Gone. So It might be his career over if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah, maybe he can come back to Milwaukee. Who knows? But, you would love that, no, yeah. I'll just move on from that now, but... I think as well with the Clippers, when you look at the other teams in terms of defensively in the West too, I think it can really match it. When you have PG and Kawhi, who are exceptional perimeter defenders. Yes, Harden, we all know there's been that long compilation reel on YouTube with James Harden shacking the full defense. But in parts of this season, he's actually at least given it a try on the defensive end at least. So they've got a lot of aces in the way too. And Norman Powell, this is the other part too, which is it such a real integral part to the Clippers' structure coming off the bench. He normally finishes games for the Clippers and normally comes up big with a number of critical shots. I think against the Raptors recently as well, he hit a couple of big buckets down the stretch and he just he's an absolute ball getter as well when he absolutely has the ball in his hands. He's just able to pull up from anywhere on the floor. It's just a real commodity that the Lakers have got at their disposal when they can go with hard and power Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Zubats to finish games. Even Terrence Mann, if they want to, too. They've got so much flexibility now with their lineups, whereas before, they tried to sort of alternate not having Westbrook, Harden, PJ Tucker all at the same time because Russ and PJ aren't floor spaces. So Ty Lue's also a big part to this as well. He's the one that's really orchestrated so much of this. And LeBron James was even asked about it after the game. Someone said about the Clippers and Harden's team. No, well, it's Ty Lue's team, right? Exactly. It's the it's first thing. It's a bit thing. like Eric Spolster in Miami, if we're being completely honest with each other. Like, they're two underrated and historically really good coaches who have taken teams very far previously. Eric's won a couple of championships. Ty, just the one with uh, the Cavs, if I'm not brain dead today. But it sounds like we're all, we all think the Clippers are legit. I've got four legits as I look around the Riverside. So this was a two-part segment, uh, fourth in the West, the Clippers. I wanted to also talk about the Indiana Pacers, who are fourth 
in the Eastern Conference. They're 9-1 in their last 10 games um, and have risen to only a game and a half behind Philly. So Joel Embiid's been out for almost two weeks now with injury. Um, a bit more of a precarious spot in the East. Orlando in eighth is only two games behind fourth. So it's not as clear-cut as you'd like. In the last 10 games for the Indiana Pacers, they're shooting 53% from the floor and averaging 127 points scored, which is unreal. Uh, in that stretch, Halliburton's averaging 21 points, five rebounds, 13 and a half assists, shooting 37% from three. And Miles Turner's got a really solid eight, uh, excuse me, 18 points, seven rebounds. But they have a number of players over that 10-game stretch shooting over 42% from three. Uh, my qualifier for this is a minimum of one and a half attempts per game. Bruce Brown, Obi Toppin, Aaron Neesmith, Andrew Nemhard, and Benedict Matherin all shooting well above 42%. Like Bruce Brown's shooting 62%. Obi Toppin, not known to be a hot shot, 50%. So doing really well. My question to you guys, Jack, we can start with you. Are the Pacers legit? Well, my question back to you is, what do you determine as legit though for the Pacers? Because there's a sentence in there that says fourth in the Eastern Conference. And we know that the Eastern Conference is nowhere near as strong as what the Western Conference is. We've seen it in the in-season tournament that when the pressure gets cooking and players start to take over for themselves like the Lakers did for them towards the end, that they crumbled a little bit. And it's probably eerily similar, but in a different sense to the Clippers that we just spoke about. But for the Pacers, I just think, for me, it's good what they're doing now, the run that they've got. But when the playoffs do come around, I don't. I think experience does matter. And they haven't had that experience, a lot of the players on their roster when the time comes. And I think that... Even the best teams in the East will beat them when it counts. So they're legit in terms of where they'll probably finish around. I think they'll they'll stay around fourth to sixth, maybe even third, just depending on the season. But for me, I don't see them winning it or anything like that. But if you if you determine that legit being a, a top six seed in the East, then yes, they're legit. That's a really good question because now you've made me think about it. And my terms of legitness... I think they can beat any team that isn't Philadelphia or the Denver Nuggets with a massive center who can just barrel through. I think they've shown they can get pretty close with the Lakers with Anthony Davis. Uh, I think they had a, a massive earlier in the year. They lost by 50 to the Celtics. But if I'm not mistaken, Tom, they beat the Celtics again fairly recently. I think they're a team that can beat 27 of the other teams in the league on any given night. Um, Tom, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree with Jack where you, know, you kind of got to define legit, you know, for each team because obviously different teams have different sort of expectations and for me I think the Pacers are legit in the sense that they can very well well they will make the playoffs I'd be shocked if they don't make the playoffs now but I think they can make life quite difficult for a Celtics Bucks and even the Sixers Heat like they can definitely make them sort of sweat out the first round but overall I just don't think they have the firepower to beat those teams in seven games and I think over a course of a series teams can sort of scheme against them and also you know a lot of their players at the moment in the stretch are just very hot. I mean, they had two games against the Celtics in Indiana. Celtics beat them comfortably in the first game. Second game was the one that Halliburton got injured in the second quarter. And at halftime, the Celtics were up by about nine points, I think, or eight points. And then Indiana came out in the second half, and TJ McConnell just was flying up and down the court and basically won them that game. But they also had guys just get incredibly hot, um, and Tatum didn't play that game. I mean... A lot of the games Celtics have played against Indiana, they've been missing one of either Tatum or Porzingis. So it's up for the air whether that you know is the case in point against the Bucks. I know they've done well against them, but the Bucks are just one of those teams where it's hard to sort of judge them in the regular season because you know come playoff time, Giannis is going to go from playing 32, 33 minutes to 40. and Giannis at forty minutes is a completely different beast because he just 
you, you can only contain him for so long without fouling him, and he just gets to the line, and he shoots, instead of shooting 16 free throws, he can get up to, like, 25. So I don't know how much weight you can put on it, but I, I think the Halliburton injury is going to hurt them. Yeah, I mean, since he has been injured, they beat the Celtics in that second half, and they had impressive wins, but not great opposition against the Wizards and the Hawks. Um, I, I wonder if they should make a move for someone. You know, we know Pascal Siakam is basically available, and so now is Giante Murray. Um, and look, they have flexibility to make the trade, and they own all their picks, but their assets aren't that appealing. And I think Siakam or Murray really make them a championship contender. So, Beautiful like, I, segue. I think, uh, yeah, I, I just I think that they should just hold firm for the moment. Wait, like everyone knows, the next big name stars just out there waiting to request a trade. It's it's, it's always going to come at some point. And you know, I mean, Damian Lillard didn't have Milwaukee on his list of teams originally, and said Miami or bust. Look where he is now, and I, I think that worked out perfectly for him. So you know, Indiana have the picks going forward with the new CBA. These big teams might not be able to you know make trades going forward. And just a little side note, I mean, Indiana's hosting the All-Star Weekend. What a, what a better way to show Casey City to these all these stars and go, hey, guys, look how great we've got it. Come join us. You know, Halliburton, he's going to get you, you know, seven to eight guaranteed buckets a night at least. He shares the rock. So watch out for them in the future. I, I reckon they're a sneaky sneaky team for, years, for a few years to come. We didn't even tee that up about Pascal Siakam. So I have one Indiana Pacers fan in my life. Shout out to Big Ben, six foot five, built like a brick shithouse. I play basketball with him every week. Uh, he's been a Pacers fan for 15, 20 years. And I asked him uh, if he wants Pascal, like does he think that improves the team? Because long-term, this is a team that's needed a four to play either next to Miles Turner or replace Miles Turner minutes. He actually said to me, uh, I'm hesitant to do it because we have such good depth and I don't want to lose Naismith. He shoots really well. It would make us contenders. I'd have to think about it. Probably yes. Yuri, your thoughts? Yeah, I think when you look at the season as a whole, you can definitely say... They're legit in terms of defining expectations, absolutely, from, well, I think they're predicted to win about 38 to 41 games this year, and they're going to win well past this, unless, of course, what happened last season, they were exactly in the same spot. They were 23-18 when Tyrese hurt himself against the New York Knicks back on January 11, and the whole season really went on a, went on a downward spiral. But I think with the depth that they've got this season and with a couple more of their youngsters with another season of experience under their belt, they're a lot better for it. I think there's still the issue, the worry is though, apart from the offense, yes, number one with 126.6 points per game, is that they're they're a terrible rebounding team. They're second last in rebounding at 40.8. That's just ahead of the Washington Wizards who are about 39.4 something. And when you look at their opposition three-goal, three-point field goal percentage, it's pretty deplorable too. They rank 19th in that category, about 37.6. So they've still got a lot of deficiencies on that end. And even Tyrese Halliburton was talking about it too a handful of games ago, is if they want to advance further and become better as a team, they've got to defend more consistently for 48 minutes. So that's still the real glaring spot. But when you look at Indiana Pacers basketball since 1989-1990, they've only... made the postseason 25 out of those 34 times, which is such a remarkable feat, right? And even during when they traded all those guys away, what, at the end of when they made the NBA Finals back in 2000, lost to the LA Lakers in six games, they traded away. I think Rick Smith's retired. There was a bunch of other players that left. Dale Davis got traded to a Portland Trailblazers in exchange for Jermaine O'Neal. They really started from scratch that season. And even for the next couple of campaigns, that 01 and 02 season, they finished... That's the number eight seed and almost upset the New Jersey Nets in that first round, right, where it went into overtime. So they've had for such a long history, though, Indiana. They don't really bottom out apart from four consecutive 
playoff sort of non-playoff appearances from about I think it's 2006 all the way to 2010. So they've really sort of defied the expectations for a small market team. And even this season alone, what they've been able to do, of course, we've spoken about the rivalry they've been able to build up with the Milwaukee Bucks. But then it's the next stage as well come the playoffs. If they do finish as a sixth seed or fifth seed, depending on what happens in the second half of this season, is that the game slows down a lot when it comes to the playoffs. It's a lot more physical. The referees will put their whistles away. There'll be a lot more less free throws. And so that's going to be the big part, the physicality. And I think recently too with the Pacers is that they've been able to change their lineup a little bit. They've brought Jalen Smith back into the starting lineup. And we spoke about Jalen a few episodes ago where he was the starter last season and then basically fell out of the rotation. But I think Rick is figuring out too that it's not too bad to actually start with a bigger lineup because if they, again, make the postseason, then that's what they're going to be facing up against. The bigger guys, right? Giannis, Brooke, Bam Adebayo. Even if, say, Wendell Carter gets healthy in Orlando, he manages to make the playoffs for the first time since 2019. Just an assortment of bigs who are super athletic but also possess a different skill set too. So I think they're in a really good spot at this season, but the whole adjustments they've got to make defensively is going to be the big thing if they want to really make a stamp on the East. A couple other things to talk about before we move on to performances of the week. Stories in the NBA this week. Uh, the Wolves hitting a slight snag in offense, slowing down. They lost a couple games this week. The New York Knicks thriving with OG and Anobi. Um, they're a very fun team to watch basketball games for. I don't know if you guys have been watching the Knicks this week. Uh, and Tom, I know you wanted to talk about back-to-backs um, and the current state of the NBA with the scheduling. Have you picked, Tom? What do you want to talk about? The Wolves, the Knicks, or back-to-backs? I'm going to have to go back-to-backs because it's just... It really has frustrated me this last week. And I'm a little bit biased as, you know, the Celtics did get the short end of the stick having to play the Bucks on the second night of a back-to-back. But honestly, full disclaimer, I think the Bucks played the best game they've played all season. I don't think we would have beaten them even if it hadn't been on a back-to-back. I mean, when Bobby Portis has a game that's, you know, prime Steph Curry, you know, mixed with prime Ray Allen uh, who you know he just wasn't missing any <laughs> shot from beyond the arc we weren't going to beat them but it, it just frustrates me because Bucks and the Celtics are games that you know I mean I feel like not just the Celtics fans and Bucks fans are circling that on the calendar they want to watch these games because it's just after that seven game series a couple post seasons ago they're just they're great to watch and most of the top contending teams when they play each other you want to watch them there's a reason why they're on national TV and not just on the local networks but when you schedule one team on the second night of a back-to-back, it just takes away so much because you just know that they're not going to be as good. It, it, it's just never the case. It's rare that a team comes out on the second night of a back-to-back and plays as well as they would have it being, you know, being fresh. And I mean, the Bucks had three days off, and I think that was a contributing factor as to why they did look so good because the Bucks had had a long stretch of you know games every other day, but nearly got a finally got a break, finally got some you know practice in, and they looked elite and the team we all thought they would be. And, you know, I mean, the same thing happened last year when the Celtics beat the Bucks by 41 points. The, the Bucks were on a back-to-back, and they were playing their fifth game in seven games too. And it just... It also feels like, you, you know, I, I walked out of that game taking not much away from it last year, and I walked out of this game not taking much out of it either because you just can't really tell. And it's just... It, it irritates me, and it just keeps happening because we keep getting, like, so many of these matchups where it's just two elite teams, and one of them's on a back-to-back. I mean... When I was in Philadelphia to see the Celtics play at Philly, Philly were on the second night of a back-to-back, and it's just, 
it's infuriating. These are key matchups. You know, if you're going to, like, no offense to the lower level teams, but if you're going to do it, schedule these big teams against the lower ones on the second half of a back to back, where it's just not as marquee. And it's just frustrating because star players are missing games. I mean, today, Curry, Zion, Wemby, they all did not play because they're on the second night of a back to back, and on the injury report, they were listed out due to rest. I mean, Wemby's what, 19. Zion, yeah, he's had an injury history, but does he really need rest? We missed seeing Curry and go up against Giannis today. Two of the best players, arguably, ever in the history of the league didn't get to play each other, and they only play each other twice a season. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just getting really frustrated with it. And should should the NBA look at potentially reducing the number of games just so they can reduce back-to-backs? Yes. Yes. 72 is my magic number. Jack or Yuri, you can... Uh, chip in. 72 is my magic number. I think you take out a majority of these back-to-backs if you drop it down by 10 games. Yes, the purists will argue it'll ruin stats. The stats are already being ruined by the offensive skew we're seeing with three points and etc. So I think 72 is a nice number, but Jack, go ahead. Talk me out of it if you want. Hey, no, I'll pile on with my own magic number with it. And this is where my rant was going to get to as well. So Tom's Love absolutely it. nailed it for what he has to say, but I'll add on to it as well. Why do we have seven timeouts in a game? I hate sitting there and watching League Pass and it goes to dance cam everybody 70 seconds. And then you go to swap across the games. I reckon the timeouts go longer than the quarter time break sometimes. They say that it's a minute and 15 seconds. I reckon, especially on Lakers games, I feel like they're three minutes long. It's just as you're getting into the game, it's, it's like, okay, another timeout. And I get from a tactical point of view, it's good to stop it from a flow. Or if your team's not going that well, you need to do a pick-me-up. Why do we need seven? We we should have one for the first half and maybe two for the second half. If if you're worried about game sizes being too small from there, even though it's annoying, make it 15-minute quarters. I don't don't know how we address it, but we can't be having that that stop start. The NFL is the same. I was watching that today. American sports just have it completely wrong in comparison to even the EPL. People say that can be boring, but you have 45-minute stints before you have the halftime break, so it's their ebbs and flows throughout the game is really what the break is. AFL, NRL, all the same for Australian sports. I don't know what Americans are doing, but it's still my head in. It's the ad revenue, Jack. Yuri? I think as well with the referees, when they go to the um, score with, to the monitor to check your foul or flagrant foul or common foul, and that takes five to six minutes. They need to replay it every three to four times. And you're just thinking, if it's a common foul, call it a common foul. Don't call it a flagrant one where people are sitting on their seats, eating away their popcorn, having a soda to drink, and we're just being consumed by the referees just doing this, just squinting their eyes at the, at the finest milli detail which you can see on tv quickly it's not like it's a difficult referee decision i don't want to piss on the referees they've got a tough job but i don't know if any of you guys watched the raptors versus lakers game the last four minutes of that game this week took an honest to god hour and i'm sitting at work on my lunch break like i'm about to miss the end of this key game because the referees kept going back to the the table to have a look and it took six minutes and then there was three timeouts back to back to back we're spot on here Adam Silver, I'm looking directly at the camera. If you're listening, hire us. We're cheap. A package deal, the four of us, we can throw Jules in for free. He doesn't know it. We can fix these issues, right? We're young. We got some mozzi. I don't even know what mozzi means. We can do it. We're up to the challenge. That's it. We'll go back. Love it. I love it. Yeah, I was watching that final three minutes of Lakers-Raptors and uh, I probably don't want to say too much about a particular thing as well, but a lot of 
people in social media, non-Raptors fans included, were really incensed by some things that went down, right? And we even heard the Raptors coach, Darko Rajakovic, too, talk about it. So won't proceed any further. I'm wearing a Raptors shirt right now, and I was incensed. So we need to move on to something more positive. Um, the talent level in the league at the moment, purely incredible. Tom, you did mention these teams are top-heavy. That's only because there's almost two and a half stars on every team. Uh, it does make it difficult come all-star time when uh, key players like a Damian Lillard might not be selected. So I've got uh, five players in front of me, and I want to spend two minutes on each, just figuring out if these guys belong in the all-star conversation or can find themselves in a team. I've got uh, Chet, Damian Lillard, Larry Markin, and Jared Allen and Scotty Barnes. So I'll, we'll go through one at a time, and I just want to see consensus if they belong in all-star conversation. So starting with the rookie, Chet Holmgren, Averaging eight, seven, two and a half assists, two and a half blocks a game, shooting 55% from the floor, 40% from three on four and a half attempts per game. I think the Thunder, are, if not their number one in the West at the moment, they're number two, not far behind. A really mature team, which is surprising, led by SGA. Jack, does Chet Holmgren deserve some all-star buzz? Uh, if he is, he's going to be a reserve. I think. I honestly think it's borderline. I haven't had a look since last week when I did my own podcast around the all-star votes, but I don't, I don't think he's there just yet. Um, I'd like to. I'd like to know who else is in uh, the front court to probably have a look at it again. And I probably should have done my research in terms of that. No, I didn't do I it. Was, I, think, I think he's had a fantastic season to date, and I think he surprised a lot of people. Obviously, the talk was about Wemby and how it was. And I think even in the odds market, he's been favourite and then second favourite. Been going back and forth, ebbs and flows throughout, obviously, the first half of the season. So I think, look, I think he's in the discussion, but I don't think he's an all-star at this stage. Tom, Yuri? I think he's going to be close. I think their record stands, 27-11, tied with Minnesota for the best in the West. And when he have those average stat lines too, but the other part too as well, even when Damian Lillard, was it with the Portland Trailblazers, should I say? Even CJ McCollum, when he was with Portland, they couldn't get into the All-Star team, right? Because of how much depth there is in the guard spot in the Western Conference. Likewise, as well in the front court, he's going to have to be competing with Zion, Brandon Ingram, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, Nicole Jokic, Michael Porter Jr. may get some votes here or there, Aaron Gordon. We can go through the whole section of names within the Western Conference, right, that have been absolutely playing their minds off. Paul George, Kawhi Leonard. The list goes on, right? Kevin Durant. It's just, it's such a logjam, right, that it makes it a little bit harder to get get a little bit of love and respect, I think, from the voters too. But if he does make it as a reserve, then I think it should come as no surprise whatsoever what he's been doing, considering he had that foot surgery, missed his entire rookie campaign, and to be producing numbers as he's been doing, right? I think it's just magnificent. I, I love what he's been doing this season and I didn't expect him to have this sort of impact immediately. But for me, it's just a no. I mean, I have him behind Jokic, Davis, Gobert, Sabonis when it comes to sort of the big centres. There's only 12 spots and it, it would be hard to slot him in. That being said, it's I think every year for the last five seasons, you name the 12 players and then all of a sudden someone gets injured just before the All-Star break. You bring in more reserves and suddenly 12 gets to like 15 so I wouldn't be surprised if he's sort of that next man up after the first original 12 players uh, are selected. But, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment whether there should be more slots on the All-Star team. I Personally, I don't think there should be. I like the fact that it's a competition it's hard to get into. But, um, you know, I mean, 
not to step on Alex's toes here, but that's where it comes into someone like Damian Lillard, where should he make it, should he not? And, you know, I'll, I'll throw to you guys in a second, but for me personally, Damian Lillard, he's averaging 25 points per game, 6.8 assists per game, 43% from the field. It's not his great numbers, but the difference between Damian Lillard and someone else is Damian Lillard is one of the best 75 players ever to play the game. So yes, his start, his numbers don't match up to what they normally are, but it's still start numbers. They're still better than some of the other guards in the East. So for me, Damian Lillard has to be an all-star. I, I don't care that he's not playing as well as he should. He's still the second best player on the second best team in the East. And they're still great numbers. If anyone was throwing up those numbers, I'd happily have them on my team. So I don't, I don't, I'm going to assume what Yuri's answer is probably going to be for this one. But I, you know, what do you guys think? I completely agree with that. I think he gets lost in translation with the numbers that he's done previously. Now that he's in a new side, obviously Giannis is the number one in that team. We sort of just go, well, Damian Lillard's not dropping 30 points. He's not playing well. And it's, it is surprising that he's, he's averaging 25 points because it doesn't feel like he's having those 25-point games that he was at Portland, getting him across the line because he's not the main guy in the team doing that like we've spoken about previously but yeah I completely agree they're second in the east he should be an also yeah it's a really peculiar one too especially with Dame's field goal percentage this season which both of you absolutely touched right there is that it's a little bit lower than Tyrese Maxey shooting about I think 47 percent and Jalen Brunson shooting about 46 percent and I think Tyrese is averaging what 25 26 points per game Jalen Brunson's averaging 25.8 points per game and those two are doing it really efficiently as well but when you sort of put it in a whole spectrum, is that Maxi's ascent right this season from basically being sort of made third wheel in a way behind Harden and Embiid last season to having more of that responsibility as a point guard and really sort of being that floor general and orchestrating the offense has been a real integral transcendent shift in the Philadelphia 76ers season where I think most people probably wouldn't say had questions, but they're sort of an uncertainty at that point where how Maxi would be able to sort of control the half-court offense. But also in transition, he's provided that different dynamic compared to Harden where Harden will just slow the ball up. Whereas Maxi, whenever he has the rebound, he will go full helter for skelter, 94 feet from one end to the other. And Jalen Brunson as well, we've talked about countless times on this podcast, his just niftiness at times to get to his spots, even the most tiniest of gaps and just be able to just he seems to have, seems to just have all the time in the world to get his jumper up or the floater up and even his chemistry of Julius Randle's been just impeccable so those two I've voted for in the all-star team as well I think I had Tyrese Maxey as my starting point guard just because of what he's done for the Philadelphia 76ers this season that's nothing against Damian Lillard whatsoever considering he is in that new setting like Jack spoke about too and the other part too as well, when you have Giannis who's averaging, what, 31 and a half points per game, Chris Middleton who's slowly been working his minutes up to about 30 to 31. So you've got to take those factors into account as well. And I think is the other part too as well, opposition defensive attention on Dame as well. We've seen games where he's only shot, I think, five of 18 in one. And sort of there's been a few of those which he's really sort of hasn't quite had his shot going. But apart from that, if he is a reserve, then all's well. It just comes down to depth, I think, as well, especially for Laurie Markkinen. I don't think that he makes it. The Jazz aren't going that well this year. Jared Allen has had a tremendous year, I think, in terms of his um, input for the team, especially on offense. I think he's he's had some monster games as well, a couple of 20, 20 and 20 games. So he, he potentially could be there, and the East will help that. But for me, I, I, it's, yeah, 
I don't think that they make it. Yeah, look, Utah's been great. I can't say I've watched a whole lot. I watched the uh, Utah Bucks the other day, and that I was I was shocked at how well Utah played that game. But I, for me, I, it's just a no. And you know, I did the exercise when I was doing my notes for today's show. If you go and try and pick all stars in the West, it's it's impossible. So I, I went and got my twelve. And you know, tell me if you think any of these guys shouldn't make the team. But for me, at the moment, my starters, I've got Luca, SGA, Davis, Jokic, Kawhi. Then going to the bench, I've got Paul George, LeBron, Gobert, Edwards, Curry, Durant, Fox. That's that's 12 there. I, 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 I found it hard to cut any of them. And there are still so many star players who have not made it. And I just... Honestly, I'm, it made me kind of think maybe because I, I was able to sort of have two spots on the East kind of floating around where I'm like, uh, I don't know if these players deserve All-Stars over some guys in the West. Maybe we should only have, you know, 10 East, 10 West, and then the last four spots are just up for grabs. doesn't matter what conference you're in because, you know, the West is just deeper. It's just a fact. And it has been for pretty much the last decade and a half nearly. Uh, you know, it, it's impossible. So for me, Larry's a no. And Jared Allen, I personally... I just say no. I just don't think the Cavs have been good enough to have two All Stars because I think Mitchell has to be on the All Star roster. And personally, I'd have Randall, Bam, Siakam, even Lopez, and Porzingis over Jared Allen at the moment on the All Star team. Yeah, completely agree with Jack and Tom and Lara. He's had a tremendous season once again, averaging about twenty three point six points per game. I think he's shooting about forty eight and a half percent from the field, and as Alex mentioned too, shooting basically forty percent from three, especially with that depth we've talked about in both the guard and front court positions it's going to be incredibly hard right and just just can't quite see him squeaking in apart from the jazz having going on such a excellent run thus far too and most likely going to beat the lakers to make it nine of nine out of their last 11 and whereas too as well apart from Larry's we spoke about with Jared Allen. And his last 10 games, he's been averaging 19 points, 13.7 rebounds and four and a half assists. And it's the assist numbers which absolutely stand out, right? We think of sort of big guys over the years. And Joachim Noel was one of those guys, which he made an absolute leap with his facilitating, right? I think he averaged about four assists in 2012-13. And he ended up averaging 5.4 assists the following season when he won his defensive player of the year. Jared Allen had a seven assist game recently too, which as well, was one shy of his career high of eight against the Kings back on August 7, 2020, when they were playing in the bubble that year. So his facilitating has gotten a lot better. Yes, it's not on pro Joachim Noah passing extraordinaire extravaganza levels on Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid, but they've found a little bit of a different sort of scheme, I think, the Cavaliers, especially these last 12 games. They've gone nine and three since losing to the Celtics on December 14, that the floor spacing's been a lot better too. And I think Jarek can operate from the high post as well and just dump off these nice little lead passes to a cutting teammate. He did one to Craig Porter during their game against the Dallas Mavericks. So it's just a nice little dimension that Coach JB Beckerstaff has been able to implement for the Cavs, which I think is really good for their offense and provides a lot more of a different sort of dimension within. And I think the other part too as well, Jack mentioned some of his monstrous games as well. He had 30 points and 12 rebounds in that game against the Milwaukee Bucks on December 29. And I think by memory, watch that first half he made, I think his first eight field goals too in the first quarter. And he had another monster game against Dallas with 24 points and 23 rebounds two nights earlier. And he came up with a significant defensive play late in the game on Luka Doncic, which he basically altered his shot. And of course, everyone knows Luka complains to the rest, which he did. So he does so many of these different things on defense. And now on offense, Teams are going to have to pay a lot more respect to him on that end. And yes, 
his jump shot. He doesn't take a lot of jump shots, but he gets involved in those pick and roll situations and being an absolute lob threat like he was at the Brooklyn Nets. So I think he definitely deserves some love to getting into this year's All-Star team. Okay, one more. What about Scotty Barnes? Third year in the league, 20 points a game, 8.4 rebounds, nearly six assists and three stocks. Shoots 48% from the floor, and he's jumped from 28% from three last year, up 10% a season, uh, 38% for the season on 5.93 point attempts. What say you, gang? Scotty Barnes. All-star? No. In summary, I don't know. In summary, I, 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 if he is, again, he's going to be borderline reserve, in my opinion. I, I really like how much he's improved this year, but for me, it's a no. I mean, Raptors can't have two All-Stars, and Siakam probably deserves to be in over him. Yeah, I think it's also going to be a little bit trickier just because of the Raptors' record at this stage. I think they're 16-23 and 23 by memory too, which doesn't really bow too well. But when you take away that record and what he's been able to produce, right, and I think we spoke about in the first couple of weeks of this season with his three-point shot, there's less hesitancy. I think teams now are looking at him in terms of we can't stand five or six feet sort of away from him and allow him to shoot because now he's going to be able to knock those down with consistency, unlike the last sort of couple of years, right? So I think it's been a real sort of rapid improvement on Scotty's behalf too. And I think hopefully we'll somehow if the Raptors do turn around, I think probably impossible at this stage, but you never know, right? So, but I think what Scotty has been able to produce this season as well and really take on that franchise leader, the next sort of franchise player for the team moving forward into the future. All right, that's it. Last segment, performance of the week. Tom, take us home, mate. I uh, I had to go with uh, Jason Tatum against the the Timberwolves. I mean, he did nothing but basically score. I mean, he only had about four rebounds and uh, two assists, I think. But he had forty five points on fifty percent shooting, six of eleven from three. And what was really impressive was the Celtics looked like they were about to lose their first home game of the season as they were down seven with about two minutes ten left, and the. Timberwolves just weren't missing anything. And then he scored the next eight points for the Celtics, got it to overtime, and then in overtime, he outscored Minnesota 12-9 by himself. And he just absolutely hunted uh, Cat. I mean, Gobert wasn't playing, which helped, but he drew Cat out numerous times, went by him. There's a very nice crossover move. And, you know, he's starting to hit his threes now, and that's what he wasn't doing earlier in the year. So if he starts hitting his threes, the Celtics team might just get even scarier. I've been a bit negative today, but I'm going to stick with it for this one. It was, I watched this game live on Friday. The Thunder beat Portland Trailblazers by 62. Um, and unfortunately for Street Henderson, he had minus, a plus minus was minus 56. And he went four from 21 from the field, which is 19%. So uh, it's just, it's not a complete knock considering it's his rookie season. But it's like, if you're four from 21, surely when you get to about 15 shots, it's like, yeah, I've got to start passing this rock off, I think. Yeah, got Bradley Beal's 37 points in their win over the LA Lakers too. I think the whole offense, which they'll be able to run a little bit since Bill's return back from that ankle injury too. I think it's really sort of intriguing as well, that guard-guard screen roll with him and Booker and Durant. They ran a couple of plays, which Bill sort of went away from the screen too and got to the mid-range, took a dribble and pulled up, which from his usual sweet spot. I think it's a really good ploy that Frank Vogel has been able to put in, right? In terms of, we spoke about it last week in terms of, their point guard facilitates by either having Booker, Bill, Durant facilitate for various stretches as well during games. I think it's really good. And Bradley Bill's eight three-pointers, it was one shy of his season high of nine against the Memphis Grizzlies all the way back on March 16, 2019. So it's a real intriguing part now with the Phoenix Suns and just how they sort of continue to mesh the three together. And I think the 
interesting section of this all is in terms of resting one of their players and just having two of them on the court at the same time, I think that would be something that could really work out extremely well because they did it on Friday against the Lakers. I think at one point they had Booker, I think, exit the game. I think the first quarter, of, I think it was about 4.20 left or something. And it was Bill and Durant for that time. And then either one of Bill or Durant would rest and then Booker would be on the floor with either one of those two. So it's a real sort of switch-switch combination I think Vogel is looking to do. And I think it's a real interesting part now, Bradley Bill, right? Because we've seen during his Washington Wizards career, he was basically the second scoring option behind John Wall until Wall got hurt in 2017-18. He took over the reins, right? And everyone started to pay a lot more notice to Brad's offensive game. So it's a real sort of, yeah, it's interesting. It is really interesting to see what moves forward too. I think the other part as well, apart from Bradley Bill's great game, is the fact that Frank Vogel is looking for the team to take more threes, considering they rank 26 at 31.6 attempts per game too. You look at the three-point attempts on that team, Eric Gordon, 6.7, Devin Booker, Grayson Allen, 5.5, Kevin Durant, 4.5, Bradley Bill, 3.8. I think those numbers will go up a lot more significantly considering they're 11th in three-point field goal percentage at about 36.4. So they've got exceptional three-point shooters. You're just trying to incorporate a lot more threes into the system. Anything left that we didn't mention yet on today's show? Take anyone? This season, in terms of players who shot 40% or greater from three-point territory, I was just doing some research on this too. 46 players are shooting better than 40% or more from downtown. No, 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 won't name it. And Malik Beasley is the leading three-point shooter this season. I think 48, 47.8% going into their game against Golden State today. I, I just got one quick one, and I'm just going to go around asking for yes or no's. I mean, at the start of the season in our awards prediction, I had Darvin Ham as coach of the year. Lakers are now just lost. <laughs> they've, they've, they've just lost to the Jazz. They're now two games under 500. Between now and our next show, they will play the Thunder, Mavericks, and Nets all at home. They could very well go 1-2. and two. They could very well go 3-0 and oh or 0-3. Oh just quick yes or no. Is Darvin Ham going to be their coach next week when we record? I think their, uh, biggest, yes, Darvin I will think be. their biggest issue is the fact that if LeBron and AD aren't playing well, who's their next best player? And everyone goes, well, Austin Reeves. Well, he's coming off the bench and he's on a big contract. And then you go, well, D'Angelo Russell. Well, now he's coming off the bench as well. Like, why is Torrey and Prince starting? That bloke shouldn't be starting Buddy Moore at the Pistons as well. It's ridiculous. Like, they, they've got no depth. They need Watch this. They'll be making a big, big couple of trades before the deadline, I reckon. That's it for another fun edition of the NBA show. As a reminder, you can find Tom Dev. He writes sometimes on the raw.com. You can find Yuri Bilsich links to his stuff in today's show notes. And Jack, you're the CEO of Sports Confidential. You've got some exciting stuff coming up on your socials. I encourage you to go follow it. As always, I'm your host, Alexander J from Daily NBA with Alexander J. If you're not following us on our socials or you enjoy the show and you want some more, please check out what we're, we're all doing really good stuff. Um, that's why we all are good friends. Thanks, guys. <laughs> See you next week. Cheers, Alex. Thanks, Alex.